0: Now entering the Bitcoin
1: Podcast Network. Welcome, listener. You are now plugged in to
0: an Ethereum podcast.
1: Your host, Evan Van Ness. I'm live with Doug Pecknics from Livepeer. This is Evan Van Ness with an Ethereum podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Doug. You uh, you say that you are the Larry David of blockchain. Or aspiring to be—is uh, there—is there any funny story behind that?
0: <laughs> that's a—that's a great uh, hot introduction there. The Larry David of the blockchain engineering world. Uh, there's I actually go not an amazing. <laughs> you come in. You come in hard. Uh, thanks for having me, Evan. Yeah, there's actually um, not an, not any more amazing story behind that other than I think uh, we should all have a little more Larry David approach to life and not take ourselves too seriously, especially in. Uh, in a world like blockchain where people tend to live and die by their their emotions day to day as if it's the you know, most serious thing that could possibly be going on in the world. And in reality, I think we're all pretty uh, fortunate to be able to work in this new, exciting, amazing area of technology. And there's a lot of people out there who have a lot uh, worse problems than than we do. And I think it's great that we can use kind of decentralized tech to Potentially solve some of those problems and and help them out and I think bring, bringing a good like sense of humor to the space is probably uh, A reasonable idea.
1: So basically you're you're just both New Yorkers who who think we should curb our enthusiasm
0: Yeah, yeah, and avoid all the uh, the stop in chats along the way if possible uh,
1: So uh, y- your name on on the internet is is often DOB. Is there is there any story behind that?
0: There is. It's my, my middle name is Brian and my first name is Douglas. So the DO from Douglas and the B from Brian was uh it was the shortest email address that was proposed to me as one of my eight options when I entered college. So I could either be DOB or I could be something insane like D B PetCan thirty two. So D O B was my initial internet presence and it stuck.
1: Wait, so I think you're a few years behind me, so you probably graduated in like the mid two thousands what um all the good emails were already taken by then?
0: I don't think the good emails were taken. I think um, I think my school just gave me only four or six options, and you had to choose from one of them, so it's probably a draconian email management system they were using rather than a limitation of availability
1: you You went to Penn, right?
0: I did. Yeah, I graduated in 2006. I studied computer science.
1: That's, uh, that, that's kind of bizarre. They gave you four options. I, I would I think I would have spent my entire like, first year trying to figure out how I could circumvent that and get myself a better email if they'd, if they'd given me those options.
0: It, it was a different time. But luckily, you know, I was an early adopter on GitHub and uh, some of these other online services. So at that point, locking down a three-letter handle uh, worked out in my favor.
1: Yeah, definitely. So so you graduated from, from Penn in in 2006. Uh, I guess walk us through um, your time into, um, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur now on your third company. I guess walk us through your time between college and, and your first company, and then we'll talk about your companies, and then we'll get into live here.
0: Sure thing. I'll try to do the, the whirlwind version, because like anyone of my generation, I've had a lot of jobs along the way. Um, But I started my career at a big company called Accenture, and I was in their custom software group where we got to build um, software applications at kind of large scale for big companies. So I learned a lot about architecture and proper software engineering there, Um, although it wasn't the most um, energizing environment for someone who is interested in entrepreneurship and creating their own thing and building things from scratch to be. So I had the opportunity to join a startup called Frog Metrics.
1: Let, let me and, stop you there for a second. You said you learned sure. a lot about about software development at at Accenture. Did you feel like that, uh, like um, this is actually like one of my father, who's been a computer programmer for decades, that his big things is that he thinks a computer science degree is worthless. Uh, do you do you feel like uh, like computer science isn't taught very well and for a bachelor's?
0: Um, I would, uh, with all due respect, disagree with your father pretty strongly. I, um, yeah, that's fair. I find that. Yeah, I find that. I my, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the program focused on the fundamentals rather than necessarily the um, kind of practical software engineering and programming. But it focused on computer science fundamentals and things like data structures and algorithms and networking security operations distributed systems and uh, especially here in the blockchain world i fall back on every single day and are invaluable uh cryptography, like kind of the sort of mathematical foundations that they they drill you on come in handy far more than some of the you know programming um, techniques that i was able to pick up over the in the industry because there there's always an opportunity to teach yourself and learn from others and kind of apprentice but really when you have time to work through fundamentals and problem sets and and challenge yourself to think in a new way you don't always have that opportunity once you enter the workforce um so I actually found the the computer science degree and background to be highly valuable
1: was so it sounds like they did a good job of teaching you fundamentals did you did you feel like there was a lot of skill sets like was it hard to to become a you know a professional like developer with, with, with that? Or, I mean, w- what was your transition like?
0: Um, I think I was lucky enough that I had um, a lot of exposure to building things early on, even well before college, just out of personal interest. Like, you know, I was always making websites back in middle school and, and high school. And I was really fortunate that my high school had um, computer science as an option and not just you know, for one year, but for three years. And that focused a lot on programming. So, yeah, uh, you know, then and even through college, just through interest, I always had the opportunity to build stuff. So my transition into kind of professional software engineering was easier than, than some others maybe who did amazing in school and had great fundamentals and background, but just weren't comfortable sitting down at a blank editor and, and architect a new software application. Though I'm sure they went on to... to on the way and teach themselves if that was something they were naturally inclined to do and, and had an interest in it. Cause really, um, you know, as a lot of us see, it's, it's really about not what you do, like when you're working, but it's what you do when you're not working and what excites you and how you like to spend your free time. And if that hope happens to overlap with your, your profession in this case, you know, software development, um, that's like the perfect storm.
1: So so I guess we'll go back into the Frog Frogmetrics. Um, so you joined Frog Metrics,
0: Right. So that was a really cool opportunity because this was in 2008 and I joined this startup called Frogmetrics right before they went through Y Combinator. And this is back in the earlier days of YC when it was still up in, in Cambridge near Boston in the summer. Right. And uh, there was only, you know, 20 companies per batch. And... Um, even though I wasn't the founder of the company, the YC partners were super um, welcoming and accepting because it was, you know, as part of this small group and, and got to pay attention and go to some of the events and learn all about um, kind of, it's kind of like startup grad school. And in, in a couple months and through the you know, next year of trying to build that company, you kind of get put through the gauntlet of everything involved in building a startup. And uh, 2008 was a tough time for many of the startups in our batch, because I think Sequoia Capital literally put out this slide deck to all their portfolio companies that said like RIP good times. There's no funding available for the next two years, batten down the hatches. It's going to be tough. They literally put out that deck and it, you know spread around the internet like two weeks before our demo day. And, you know, sure enough, all of the, uh, the, the macro downturn and, and recession set in. So, um, you know, our startup, just like many companies um, across the world, uh, went through a troubled time, and we 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 didn't end up making it work. But everyone in that company learned a lot and went on to, um, you know, found and lead uh, really interesting and successful um, startups as well. So uh, that was a great learning experience, and that led me to kind of meeting my current um, colleague, my partner on live here, Eric Tang, and our Other partner, Jordan Cooper, who's uh, an investor in Livepeer, Um, we all kind of got together and worked on uh, a startup that I was kind of ready to found and build called Hyperpublic, which was a, a local data platform. So we basically tried to index the physical world through crawling the internet and crowdsourcing data about businesses and looking at every data source we could about local points of interest in businesses. And make that data available to developers who wanted to build local apps and publishers who interacted with local businesses and needed good data. And, uh, that company ended up getting acquired by Groupon and we became their data engineering team. So kind of the, the first five years of my startup are kind of culminated in that experience and ended us up at Groupon during a pretty exciting time for that company.
1: But you stayed at Groupon like a year or maybe a little less, right? Did you just find that it was, you know, you liked launching stuff, or you like smaller companies a little bit better than?
0: Yeah, well, a year. We, we accomplished a lot in a year there, and um, the comp- Groupon went through a lot. It went. It was like the fastest growing startup, and they went public, and then um, the a lot of the management team and and some of the great senior execs that we joined to work with um, moved on or or, uh, left the company for various reasons. It really looked like a lot like a different place after a year and we had fully integrated our technology and started making an impact on, on their business, um, at that point. And for me, I was excited about the opportunity to kind of, uh, team up with, with a couple of the guys again and, and take a shot at another big problem from scratch, uh, and, kind of saw that as the right next step for me at that point.
1: So so tell us about trying to solve that big problem.
0: Yeah, so that led us to a business called Wildcard, where we said, um, this is probably about five or six years ago at this point, we said using the internet on your cell phone is a really poor experience. Every mobile website is just flooding you with ads and pop-ups, and it's it's impossible to consume content. So we kind of took all of our data structuring and data infrastructure skills from Hyperpublic, and we said, let's apply it to the mobile web. Let's try and build a machine that can take any uh web page and can classify what type of page it is, structure the data and extract it, and render it in like a beautiful native way on mobile. And from that, you know, publishers and brands and e-commerce businesses they can have, they can have people can interacting with their content and their products inside of Twitter and Pinterest and Facebook and all these like native platforms where people are consuming content and we built that tech and it was cool. But all of those big platforms, Google, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, they all also built their own siloed versions of, of kind of our technology. And they all got publishers and partners to interact with them directly, which kind of creates a nightmare situation for publishers. But, um, even though we we had this cool tech and we had this consumer app that let people navigate this kind of better mobile web and had a lot of excited users that use it every day, we really didn't have as much luck making the business work with this one because it was more kind of originally um, or it ended up being more consumer facing and just didn't get that that hockey stick growth that you need to be able to make money in consumer. So that that business unfortunately did not work out as well as uh as hyper-public.
1: I mean that's the like the, the eternal struggle of the the nascent you know decades of the internet, right? Is the, do, do standards get adopted or do they all go off into their own walled garden? Um, and just Facebook has so much monopoly power, and uh, hopefully that's like uh, something that we can you know do away with with decentralization and. Um, And also just partly what you didn't have was a network effect right and hopefully the the tokenization can can help out with that
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. It's like you're you're um, you're Trying to change a paradigm within an ecosystem that's entirely controlled by a centralized party that has very different incentives than openness and uh, interoperability and, and creating any sort of network effect that benefits anyone other than within their own walled, walled garden. And I'm super excited about token models um, kind of having the, the ability to flip that whole incentive model on its head, where the greatest thing that can happen is as much interoperability as possible and network effects that spread far and wide and enable everyone to capture value at all different layers um, because kind of the, the native protocol itself and the token holders themselves will be the ones who are all benefiting from that.
1: Well that I mean that's really a great a great segue into to where we are right now, which is LivePeer. Um, so you are working on a the decentralized video layer of the web three decentralized stack. Um, I've, I've struggled with how to ask questions about this <laughs> uh, because it's a it's it's a it's a big thing for sure uh, so I, I think I'll, I'll read the you know what you wrote it's a fully decentralized peer to peer solution where nodes contributed their own computation and bandwidth in service of streaming live video to be more open and scalable as there will be no limit to the number of connections that can be served uh, so I guess, sure. I yeah, guess there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's start unpacking it, I guess.
0: <laughs> sure thing. So yeah, the first thing you touched on, you know, the live video layer of the decentralized internet, what does that mean? I guess people are familiar with the other layers, even if they don't think of this as a development stack. So there's this Web3 vision, this decentralized internet where no one needs to rely on any centralized intermediaries. And we have Layers for that that address different things. Like we have Bitcoin that addresses payments. You could say Ether also potentially addresses payments. We have projects like Filecoin and Swarm and Storage uh, and Sia that address kind of the the data storage and and serving layer. Um, you have projects like Uport that address identity, and you have things like ENS and Blockstack that aden- that. Uh, represent kind of the the naming and DNS layer. Um, we always thought that live video, was, combined with cryptocurrency, was a really equalizing force in the world economy and allowing people to kind of be present and monetize their time and charge for entertainment or services or education um, through video. But there was actually no layer in the stack to do peer-to-peer decentralized video broadcast and nor audio nor even in streaming data and so we said well the, the live layer is really what's missing here and it's what we need in order to build some of these applications that we think can be really impactful to people all around the world and so the first thing that we said was this is both an opportunity and it's enabling factor for things that we want to see exist so that's kind of what set us down the path it's, Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. So I guess let's let's talk about um, I I want to then um, we'll assume that you know the, the network is launched and I realize that you have um, multiple phases of of, of releases here. Um, this is a long term roadmap, but sure. Um, I, I mentioned I should
0: mention we are we are currently live streaming this uh, the recording of this podcast live here as it speaks. So yeah. there are certainly yeah. various stages of release, but we, we do have a. A live version running on our testnet.
1: Yeah, and so uh, I, I told people that you know I was going to be interviewing you, and of course, the people that know of Livepeer was like, "Oh yeah, that's a that, that's a great interview. Um, I'm looking forward to it." But the people that hadn't heard of Livepeer all said, "Wait, decentralized web video? Like that can't work." <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so what you know, what wizardry is going on that they're managing to pull that off? So, I guess, um, I guess to approach that, let's see, like, um, assume that I was the one who, um, who was going to broadcast this, um, and let, and talk through what happens in the network in order for me to broadcast things when, you know, the network yep. is up and running.
0: Yep. Great. So yeah, we'll describe how it, uh, should, eventually work when everything in the white paper and beyond is is implemented yeah what problems need to be solved yeah so you don't
1: need to start with you know setting up your go environment that's sure (laughs) sure
0: (laughs) exactly so um basically for live video broadcast we're talking one to many broadcasts right that's you evan starting a stream and you want you know potentially hundreds thousands or millions of people to be able to consume that stream right there's there's really two main steps. The first is transcoding. It's taking the the one stream that you input, potentially in, let's say, 4K Ultra HD video, and it's taking that and it's converting it on the fly into many different renditions that are at different formats, different video encodings, and different bit rates. And the reason that you need all those different renditions, you know, you might need up to 24 different ones um, in order to reach every device on the planet is because different different devices accept different formats of video, and they don't all have compatibility. The world of video is very, like, closed and proprietary. Uh, and every browser, phone, smart TV, um, smart TV device, they, they all kind of... Implement different standards. So this very computationally heavy process of taking your your video and converting it into those sta- those uh, different formats is necessary. So, and so then you,
1: you have to you you're 24 different formats for any video file that, that is going to go up onto Livepeer.
0: Potentially, if you want to be able to reach everyone on the on the planet, that might not be your your requirement. Um, it's not just formats; it's bit, bit rates. rates. Yeah. So yep. So you have 4k ultra hd video coming in well no one could ever consume that on their their cell phone over a 3g connection and in fact most people on their regular home uh broadband can't even consume that they might want like 720p hd video which is still super high quality um but it's only you know 1.2 megabits per second instead of tens of megabits per second so um so we'll convert it into all those different bit rates as well. It's the combination of bit rates and formats um, that may lead you to 24 or 48 or 12 different formats, depending on what you, you know, how many options you want to give and, and who you want to reach. So
1: let me you know, let, let me jump in there for a second. Sure. Do, the 24. Any idea about how much that covers? Like I know. So this is a random example, but the Texas Legislature uh, actually still broad live streams It's uh, when it's in session in real video. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. So I'm curious as to like those you know if you do those the top 24 like is that you know like 95% of
0: definitely definitely I mean there's one format called HLS, um, HTTP live streaming that the iPhone really popularized or Apple popularized in kind of their war against Flash and um that is now pretty common and it's accepted and played by most players and most, most devices. So doing that across four different bit rates um, gets you pretty far and it's, it's certainly, you know, 80 to 90% and then uh, a couple more formats would, would let you reach the long tail. So uh, yeah, we're pretty good, but I think it, it, the adaptive bit rate live streaming is really important because you want to be playable on all different connection speeds. You don't want to cut out or lag or skip frames or, Um, just not let someone consume it if they don't have a fast enough connection you want them to get some kind of degraded experience but still be able to hear and see you so so that's transcoding then yep that's the encoding piece and that's done by a media server and all the popular media servers are like i said closed and proprietary and very expensive so First you, thing that happens in our network. Oh yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah. You, so you open sourced. You wrote a media server and open sourced it. Is that the first like open source media server out there, or?
0: Um, oh, if oh you great. Yeah. Get, so
1: re, retry your answer because like certainly certain parts of it just cut out.
0: Sure thing. So uh, Lightpeer is definitely not the first open source media server. There's plenty of uh, versions of open source media servers and components of open source media servers. But uh, there's never been the incentive before for those to be actively contributed to, kept up to date, um, performant, well-documented and easy to use. So while certainly there's been efforts, I think the token model really creates those incentives and that alignment that let this media server kind of stay up to date and push ahead of any of the closed and proprietary ones, because once you have hundreds or thousands of stakeholders and token holders, everyone's kind of aligned that they want this to be really uh, performing and, and uh, support all the features necessary to uh, to really create a great video network.
1: So I guess I guess that more or less covers uh, transcode and we'll go back to that to talk about Truebit and and bonding. But um, so uh, uh, so I broadcast my video, it goes to the transcoder, they transcode it. Um, yep,
0: this, with, then then the, the, yep the, the second piece beyond that is the uh, really important piece and, and expensive piece, it's, it's content delivery. And that's basically every single person who's watching the video requires some CDN node to serve it to them, and that CDN node is using you know, just as much bandwidth as the person who's watching it. So if I have one computer that's serving 10 users the video, I'm using 10 times the amount of bandwidth as that that video um, itself requires for one viewer. And you can see how that's hard to scale, and you can see why CDNs like Akamai and uh, CloudFront are very expensive uh, because you, know, you might be using your entire internet connection to stream one HD video, whereas any one of their servers needs to you know, serve 10 or 100 times as much bandwidth as that. So we're focused on creating a centralized peer-to-peer CDN that works a little bit like a live version of BitTorrent, where instead of there being a central node or company that you're paying to host and, and serve all this bandwidth, instead... People who are consuming this video are also uh, uploading portions of it. And even people who want to be paid that aren't consuming the video can kind of serve as seed nodes in the network and they can uh, be compensated to give their bandwidth to the network in terms of uh, distributing video to all the people that are watching it. And when you're watching it, you're also uploading it to your peers. And this is not a a new concept. There are peer-to-peer CDNs. A great one is called Peer 5. Another one's called StreamRoot um an old one that pioneered a lot of this is called Coral CDN. They've they've shown that you can actually reduce 80 to 97% of the uh, bandwidth requirement on an origin server by using a peer-to-peer CDN and passing off the the bandwidth uh, provisioning to the peers and that's a huge savings. That's um you know tremendous cost savings to to broadcasters if you can do that. So if you're putting it all together Basically, you, Evan, want to do a broadcast, you will tell our network you have a job to do and you want it done in these encodings. It'll be known to you what the price per segment of video, where a segment is a couple seconds worth of video is, and you'll interact with the protocol and basically just have a deposit there that'll cover the costs, and you'll pass video to other nodes in our network who are running the media server and do the transcoding. And then they'll make the output streams available in all these formats and let you know what they are. And then anyone on the network can basically request your video and a peer to peer um, kind of swarm will be formed amongst people requesting the video who will be serving it to one another in a, in a decentralized way. And then any node on the can end up consuming any of the rendition of your, your video at the other end. And, um, that's basically how it, how it works. We can get into the protocol and the security and the verifying the work, which are some of the hard challenges that we had to solve. But the whole idea is that you can uh, broadcast a video at you know, any scale into this on-demand network, pay-as-you-go, and let the network take care of distributing it to as many people as want to request it. And those people also happen to be providing bandwidth back to, to serve it as well.
1: So, um, so if I'm, if I'm broadcasting, would I also potentially be running like, um, like serving the bandwidth as, as well that I get back from the transcoder? Cause I, the, the transcoder is going to be relatively, um, centralized isn't exactly the right word, but I think that they're like, that'll probably be somewhat specialized hardware, right? Whereas. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So there'll be, you know, certain large hubs of transcoders and then the relay nodes will, will be peer to peer. So I might also be, um, like my bandwidth will be supporting my own video that I get back from the transcoder.
0: If you want it to be, you don't necessarily have to, you know, get the video back, right. The transcoder will make that video available in the network. And as you mentioned, the transcoders are, are kind of certain special purpose, um, elected roles. And we can talk about, you know, delegation and, and bonding and how that, kind of resists centralization um, while still being the special role where they've demonstrated they've provided enough compute and bandwidth to serve this video reliably to the network. And then yeah, you, I mean your whole point, you're on your cell phone um, sending a video into the network. You don't, you're already using all your bandwidth. You don't want to have to use any additional to also relay you know, output, output, transcoded streams or anything like that. You'd rather pass it into the network and let the network take care of the scalability. And that's what you're paying for. That's what you're using live peer token for that service, which, you know, you could use live or you could use um, a free service like YouTube or Facebook who then controls your audience and monetizes them um, and makes that you know, difficult for you to control the experience. Or you can pay, an existing centralized cloud service to do this, and that's very expensive. Um, it can cost you know three dollars per stream per hour to a cloud service, or you could license a multi-hundred or multi-thousand-dollar media service software and build a solution yourself, or you could just say, "Oh, I'm on my phone. I want to just pay this network to handle it for me." I'll do so in live peer token.
1: So, I guess that's yeah, that's a good trans what transition into talking about the token. So. Um, so I pay I pay the transcoder um, to if I'm the broadcaster I pay the transcoder to to transcode um, and then I would also be paying um, a diff, there would also be a market for the, the 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 CDN like the the actual relaying and bandwidth of the content right
0: yeah we have we have more work to do on the content delivery side yeah. our whole White paper describes the encoding portion and security and on the, the CDN side, that can actually work without monetary incentives, kind of BitTorrent, or um, anyone who's consuming is also seeding. So you, you, you don't necessarily have to pay anything additional for the content delivery, but would pay. And we have more work to do formalizing this exact mechanic. You want to ensure that more nodes with with a lot of available bandwidth agree to kind of jumpstart or seed that network. Because if you have thousands of people watching, then there's plenty of bandwidth amongst them to serve one another. But if you only have two or three people watching, you might want to be sure that Someone with a lot of bandwidth is available to take the next available connection so they can start quickly and have a fast experience and there you can basically you know provide the market rate incentive to get them to contribute the bandwidth to serving uh, your vo while the network's being jump started
1: um, so so let me summarize what I heard you say there, which is basically like. Um, possibly, you would use the token for that, like the CDN part, like the, the transmission of the of the transcoded video. Um, but you haven't exactly worked worked that out yet. Is that fair to say? Uh,
0: yeah, there's so there's models for that that we that we really like and we've cited in the paper, like um, you know, tit for tat accounting in in BitTorrent. There's a protocol called Swap as part of Square Swap Swindle in Swarm Project. Um, as well as some bandwidth accounting proposals and other projects like Mysterium. and um, We have models for that. We haven't formalized uh, how exactly you would incentivize that through, through the Livepeer protocol at this point. Uh,
1: um, so I guess this is a, a good point to, to talk about how, even though it's not fully de- decentralized, we're live streaming this right now, um, so how, how is that working?
0: Yep. Yeah, so right now I started an open broadcasting system. It's a popular um, piece of broadcasting software that anyone can download for free. And I started up a live peer node, which connected to all the other peers on our, our test network. And that just exposes a, a port that using OBS, I can just send video into that port. Um, so I'm sending video into my live peer node. It, 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 at that point, I get back an ID, and then anyone on the live peer network could request the video using that stream ID. And right now, uh, anyone who's watching the video would become part of this swarm that would contribute bandwidth to passing it around. So the incentive is, if you're watching it, you're also relaying and bandwidth um, to the network, just like in BitTorrent. And the way that you know we tweeted out so that people could watch this, the quasi-centralized part, because their browsers aren't running live peer nodes right now, their browsers are just making a request to a bunch of nodes that we're running um, data center at our speaking live protocol and our request video, and then those nodes are serving it to anyone who's who's watching it. So where we need to go from here is we need to build an in browser live peer node, you know, a JavaScript based um, library that can actually form peer connections with people watching the video and can request it and, and upload it and provide bandwidth directly. And those nodes don't need to know anything about transcoding. They you know, may or may not need to know anything about token, um, but they should be able to participate in peer-to-peer delivery of the video.
1: Uh, so, so that's all for for live streaming video. Is there a way that you can actually um, like integrate some of the storage solutions in the Web three stack in order to have persistent video that you know sits around for your non live audience?
0: Great question. Uh, I love that question because the answer is absolutely, and it's pretty easy to easy to do. So there's these the decentralized storage projects. Um, Swarm is. You know, one of our favorites, it's tightly integrated with Ethereum. A Filecoin and IPFS is another. And there's absolutely no reason why any of these videos can't just be immediately written into these storage networks. And they already support um, kind of playback of, of on-demand video. So, you know, I can be doing a live stream. I can be writing the data directly into Swarm. And then at the end of all of this, once you share a Swarm uh, Content hash or URL. Anyone who clicks that can watch the video on demand. And the you know the slightly centralized ways are through gateway nodes, so that anyone on the web, regardless of whether or not they're running a node, can view this stuff. And the you know fully decentralized way, or the ways that your DApps would work, is they would just be running you know swarm and, and live peer nodes directly, and and they would uh, pull the from the peer-to-peer network.
1: So you, that would probably be paid with Ether, right? Um, if you were putting into Swarm, and I guess with something else, if it was into IPFS or, or something like that,
0: yep, yep. So yeah, right now neither Swarm nor IPFS require any token, but when they go to production, um, you know, we'll be looking at Filecoin and, and Ether as the uh, as the tokens. And it's it's interesting you mention paying for them because yes, while that is the model, you you pay to to request content or you pay to to store content and have a guarantee it'll be available these protocols are really meant to kind of equalize out your usage versus your consumption so if you're willing to run a node and store and serve some content then you have the ability to request and, and get a lot of content for you know using the credit that you've built up and it actually leads to kind of how i think a lot of this will all work in the future when there's all these different tokens for these different protocols, but they're all really at the infrastructure level. And it's really about machines talking to machines and not humans making decisions about purchase is I think that kind of you'll give some utility to networks. You'll take some utility for networks. These things will be balanced out across different tokens. There'll be liquidity through all of them through decentralized exchange. And, you know, maybe at the end of the month, some nice, service provider just kind of wraps a bill that lets you pay something that's way cheaper than what you normally pay to your centralized providers, like your cable company and your phone bill and your electricity provider and all these sorts of things. And that'll let you like settle up and either you've made money or you've paid a little bit of money for services, but hopefully all this is abstracted away from, from users at the end of the day.
1: That's, that's, yeah, that's really well put. Uh let's let's dig into the to the transcoding piece. I, I think what you know what you've done around um the ensuring uh using TrueBit to ensure that the transcoder um uh produces uh error free uh data is is really interesting. So I guess um start start with a high level on that and then maybe I'll dig in if, if I have any questions.
0: Sure thing. So one of the hardest problems we had to solve was if you're going to be rewarded for encoding video, then how do we ensure that you encoded that video correctly? You know, one attack would be, oh yeah, I took the job of encoding your video, but I just output zero bytes and didn't even do any work. Um, another attack, more malicious, would be, you know, inserting, you know, illicit or explicit frames of video inside of your your video, like they do in Fight Club in the middle of the movie. <laughs> um, so what we want to do is we want a protocol that can ensure that you didn't do that as a transcoding node. And the way to do that is to verify your work. It's essentially to look at the output of your work to maybe redo, redo it and, and compare to see if you did it correctly compared to how it was supposed to be done. But you could see how that would be potentially very expensive. You don't have to pay for the work to be done twice. And how do you trust that the checker is themselves honest and not colluding with you? Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about this protocol called Truebit, which uh, was a paper by Jason Touche and uh, Christian Wright-Weissner from the Ethereum Foundation. And they basically created this protocol that lets you do computation off-chain and put the result back on-chain. And it runs through this whole process of incentivizing people to check the work and report errors and challenge you in a way that the blockchain can be the final judge and arbiter and determine who actually was correct. Um, and it's an amazing protocol. Really excited about it. We're happy to support the development of it and collaborate with them. But it's also very expensive. It's um, you know if transcoding a video costs ten cents, then using TrueBit to check that might cost fifty cents to five dollars. So that becomes kind of a non-starter. So what we had to do is devise this scalable solution on top of Truebit that involves randomly checking only very few segments of video, maybe say one out of a thousand or one out of 10,000, after you've committed to the work that you've done in a way that you can't change it later. So you as a transcoder, do all the transcoding for the full video. It could be hours worth. You commit to it. And then a couple segments might be challenged. You provide proof that you did it correctly for those challenged segments in a way that we know the proof you provided is is right because you already committed to the work using a Merkle hash that you can't change. And then the TrueBit protocol can check that work for a very small amount. And so instead of checking for 10,000 segments, maybe you're only checking one to 10 segments. And if you... Cheated, you suffer a huge economic penalty, um, you know worse than you gain by doing all of that work and If you did it correctly as you should, great, you get your payment released, and you earn some new live peer token, kind of like mining for having done the work correctly so I know that's a lot to kind of take in over a podcast phone call, but uh, were you able to follow that, and does that make sense?
1: yeah, totally I think so um, you you actually need a a source of randomness though, right? Or or some way in order to, so that the transcoder can't figure out in advance how you're choosing the, uh, the, what, what will be audited? Do you, do you need that off? Like, can that be, can you build that in like through hashes and, and, and whatever, or do you have to have a source and Oracle to give you that?
0: Yeah. Great question. So, um, You do need a source of randomness. We can commit... Basically, the transcoder commits to that work on-chain before the source of randomness is revealed. So, um, you know, I know block hash as source of randomness is risky because it can be manipulated by a miner. So, but block hash in the future is certainly to manipulate than current block hash or block hash in the past so if you've committed to the work on chain, then a future block hash can determine which segments are going to be challenged and that's not something that you could ever know as a transcoder once you've committed and then we're excited about some of these randomization protocols so we can get away from block hash entirely Um, i'm blanking on the name of one of them right now that the one protocol team is working on that looks super interesting and exciting and and kind of can help eliminate some of this block hash reliability as a source of randomness. Is that um, Arbit? Arbit, exactly. Good call. So I think the way Arbit works is once you, um, you start with a block hash and then you have to com- compute tons and tons of hashes uh, on top of that block hash until you arrive at one that meets a certain difficulty and there's no way... That the producer of the block could have ever computed those hashes in time before they produce their block, so they, they have no influence um, over the over the output block number or random number.
1: Interesting. Let me let me go back for a second to the uh, um, to the magnitude of the slashing, right? Because I assume yes. you're only going to be you'd be checking, you know. I don't probably haven't picked an exact number yet, but you know, at one, one, one thousandth of every, um, I don't know, I guess the word is segments, um, something like that. So the, the penalty would have to be pretty large then, right? How correct. Yeah. So how do you, is this always deterministic, like from a transcoding perspective, as in like, I mean, there there's mistakes and errors as well as cheating. So, um, Right uh, like how likely is the mistakes and errors if you're a transcoder
0: yeah these are these are the exact sort of things that we're excited to be figuring out within our test net right now your transcoding is meant to be deterministic but and we've tried to build protections and such that things like oh if you miss a segment of video because your internet connection went out or for um, you you know encoded a segment, but your computer crashed in the middle of that segment or or those sorts of things that you actually don't have to claim that you did that correctly. So Hmm. you as a transcoder are only going to get paid for what you claim. There's no um, guarantee that you have to claim that you, that you did any work in which case you won't earn block reward for it or you won't earn fees for it. Um, And the, the weakness there is the broadcaster You know, may need to switch transcoders if their current transcoder doesn't seem to be, um, you know, doing the job correctly, but, um, hopefully you should always know as a transcoder when you've commit to work that you believe you did it correctly. And it would be kind of insane economically to ever commit to something that you didn't think you did correctly because, um, you would get economic penalty. You, and uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to ask: Do you want people to join your testnet? like, is that do you is that helpful?
0: <laughs> Definitely. So the the reason to join the testnet now would be twofold. One would be to really uh, play these roles and how to set up your. Um, kind of demons running on these servers that need to stay up around the clock and what the different transactions you need to call are and whether you want to build anything custom to monitor or or, or whatever. So it would really just be like familiarity. Um, the same thing is if you actually want to build a DApp. So we didn't talk a lot about what Livepeer can enable, but it really enables any DApp developer to include video um, and whether that's a you know, social sort of project like a Steam or an Akasha um, or, a, or a Leroy that wants to, you know, include video within their network, or some sort of empowerment tool, like a censorship-free journal app or, or what have you. You know, as we've seen, building dApps takes time and you're working with a stack that's not itself mature. Even Ethereum itself has you know scalability concerns and usability issues. And You know, we'd love to have people kind of participate in the test net who are building stuff and want to start building live video into their application, even if right now, you know, network will still be reset. Things aren't as reliable and and the incentives aren't necessarily there. I think now's the right time to get involved and get familiar and start collaborating with the team because, you know, we're moving towards a towards a live network and the people who are familiar now are going to be the ones who, you know, have the best ability to play valuable uh, roles in the network.
1: So you, you talked a little bit about where where this is going. Um, I guess, you know, when 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 the network is up and running, um, what what sorts of things do you think, you know, you sort of hinted at with social media, but um, what kind of business opportunities will there be beyond just DAP developers integrating?
0: Yep. So, right, I think there's like two major camps of folks who can benefit from building on LivePure. One is... The DAP developers who don't have an alternative for kind of decentralized censorship-free pay-as-you-go video in their dApps. And that's a small but growing community I'm really excited about. And then the second is just traditional broadcasters. Anyone who is broadcasting right now using expensive centralized infrastructure may be able to use live peer to get some benefits of decentralization, to eliminate their own infrastructure, or to save money on the broadcast cost itself. And that, of course, remains to be seen, and it's totally by the market and a bunch of different levers. But there's some powerful effects that you see in in token-based protocols that should make broadcasting on LivePeer cheaper in some ways than broadcasting through a centralized network could ever be.
1: So so how much cheaper do you think we could possibly get it for, you know, I don't know, the ESPN or whatever that is that is broadcasting a lot of video?
0: Yeah, how much cheaper uh, totally remains to be seen and is determined by so many factors in the market. But I could I could give you an example Predict of, the
1: future for me. Come on, Doug. <laughs> yeah, I could give you an example
0: of, of a powerful effect that can make it cheaper, which is kind of exactly what you see in Bitcoin and Ethereum mining. Right, people contribute their compute in order to mine Bitcoin or Ether, and when they get a block reward, that's worth a lot of money, right? In in Ethereum, they're earning you know five Ether per block, so that's you know who knows what where the price is today, but it could be over a thousand dollars, right? And so, therefore, they've been willing to contribute. You know a thousand dollars worth of computing power in order to to earn that reward, and that that thousand dollar reward also offsets what they need to charge people to use the network so miners you know still charge fees to use the world computer, and those fees aren 't necessarily cheap, but it would be a lot more expensive if there was no block reward because people running smart contracts would have to cover the cost of all of these um, all of these computers that are running contributing. So the same way in LivePeer, these nodes are are contributing their bandwidth and CPU in order to earn the newly minted LivePeer token. And that value that they're earning can offset what they need to charge a broadcaster um, in order to broadcast video. So you know in the early days of the network, if there's some amount of token that has some value released every hour then whatever that value is, you know, that much video can be broadcast essentially, you know, almost for free before they need to start start charging fees. And um, this is kind of the double edged sword of, of speculation, but I think in market protocols that are, that are backed by real resources, whether it be storage or bandwidth or compute, um, the effect of speculation actually helps make the network cheaper in the, the early days before you've, before you've kind of reached scale and achieved an equilibrium.
1: How, we we touched earlier on this, but how much, uh, how much computing power would you need in order to be running a transcoder?
0: Um, so that's a good question. I mean, we run them on our, um, You know, our our regular laptops and you can certainly handle outputting a couple different renditions of video, which is um, enough to do some jobs on the network. But what you'll see is that you'll see that nodes that actually um, have GPUs and have enough memory and uh, whatnot can process way more streams in parallel and therefore do it for a lower price and therefore, um, outcompete you on the network to get jobs, which is actually great because it makes the cost of, sure. of using the network go down and brings more, more broadcasters. Um, so you can look at benchmarks from kind of traditional media server companies and it, you know, it totally depends on what size server you're running. Um, you can support anywhere from, you know, two concurrent streams on your laptop to uh, 45 concurrent streams on a, Um, machine running a a nice nvidia gpu with enough uh you know ram and compute to to kind of support everything
1: um and this should be pretty parallel parallelizable right um because you know like i used to run neural net computations for fun you know like doing competitions and whatnot Um, and that's pretty much not you can't really parallelize gpus but you should be able to just i mean you could run this like a, a gpu mining farm almost right i mean
0: Yep, yep, exactly. Certainly parallelizable across many streams. Um, Within streams, we have some some technical work to do now and to the future and always that does have to do with um, determinism, something that you mentioned before. And when you're parallelizing live transcoding, sometimes you don't get a deterministic result. And therefore, that makes it hard for us to verify and check the work that you're doing. So uh we'll, we'll continue to do research and choose the algorithms that we can support and the hardware that you know might be required to the hardware configurations that might be required to to join the network such that we can always verify the work and and make sure that it's cheap and, and effective
1: we've been talking a decent bit about the token and you uh that obviously implies some sort of sale or you know token launch or sure. token generation event um, how how do you think about both forming a community and and incentivizing the the development of the
0: platform long term? Great question. So, right, our priority has definitely been on the tech and actually creating a, a usable peer to peer video network rather than focusing on just fundraising or a token sale, but It's certainly very important to us that this project be highly decentralized, and the best way to do that is to distribute the token widely. So I think as we get through the testnet and we get towards launching on mainnet and we think about token distribution, I think the things you'll look for us to prioritize are wide distribution of the token, the ability for everyone who wants to use the network or build on the network or participate in the kind of staking protocol or transcoding the network, has the ability to participate and, and get some token. Uh, and so I think you'll look for us to use mechanics that, that towards prioritizing those sorts of things rather than prioritizing, um, you know, trying to raise a huge irresponsible amount of money or just prioritizing for doing getting on. Um, so look forward to that. But then once we, you know, have distributed the, the token initially, the question becomes, well, Livepeer is a developer platform. Really, it's infrastructure. We need people to build dApps and businesses that use video on top of Livepeer. And, you know, what's the, what's the best way to do that? And uh, Evan, I, I know you've, like, seen a bunch of different approaches that projects have taken, ranging from setting aside token to kind of incentivize developers and development funds to other projects launching their own like internal vc funds to projects who get their own existing investors to commit to kind of double down invest in in developers building projects on their token to kind of the fully decentralized uh, projects not even involved but community members and stakeholders um, make their own decisions to to reinvest in, in businesses and, and projects on top and, you know, I have, I have my own thoughts about that. I don't know, Evan, if you have a kind of a favorite approach or things that you've seen that have been working well so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, Ethereum is just uh, um, people in, investing in, in the things, you know, using the native token. Um, and it's it's worked out pretty well. But, um, you know, it was also always super clear that it was a platform that, you know, um, your ether wouldn't really have any value unless things got developed on top of it. So um yep. you know, yeah, it I com- out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I completely agree. I look at the the models of consensus and what how much they've reinvested into the Ethereum ecosystem and how much the Ethereum ecosystem has gained from projects like Infura and Truffle and MetaMask and all the education that they're doing. Uh, both to developers and to enterprise, and you know that that's really powerful. And that was just a case of stakeholders acting in their their own interest, leading to the you know a great outcome for everyone in the community. And I see um, you know firms like DCG and how they held a lot of Bitcoin and how they invested in a hundred startups that were building businesses on Bitcoin. Who added a lot of value through creating exchange infrastructure and financial infrastructure to use Bitcoin all around the world. And, you know, both those cases seem to be organic and positively um, impacting of the the underlying ecosystems. And then it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how well centrally managed token incentive pools can be distributed. But I, I have a feeling that when there's a a pool of tokens set aside to that's earmarked to be distributed for this purpose, it may not be allocated as judiciously or effectively as someone who has their own stake, their own incentives, their own skin in the game, and is making the really hard decision about what is worth uh, reinvesting in to create a great ecosystem around this project. Um, So really interested to kind of explore those different, different models and figure out the 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 best way, but my instincts say that more decentralized, more distributed, and more organic leads to a better outcome than any centrally managed pool trying to spur their own ecosystem
1: yeah that that makes sense if that's what you believe, and that's why you are you are so interested in the wide dispersed disbursement of the uh and dispersion of the of the tokens yep um i I guess let's go back to the one one thing that we i promised we'd talk about later and that we haven't yet talked about um was the the bonding of the of the tokens um with the with the transcoders can you can you walk us through that a bit
0: Sure thing so we have a um, delegated proof of stake inspired protocol um You've probably heard of proof of stake um, as Ethereum is is moving towards that with with Casper and and that's part of the future. So delegated proof of stake was uh, coined by Dan Larimer, who created BitShares and Steam and is now on EOS. And in regular proof of stake, such as Casper, there's going to be a set number of validators or block signers who get to participate in the protocol and get to earn block rewards. And I think there's some minimum, like I think it's been said that you'll need to hold about a thousand ether to be a candidate to um, be a validator. So it's, um, while it's still decentralized, it still suffers from, you know, a little bit of of centralization and only the rich maybe get to play, um, which, which could be okay. So in delegated proof of stake, it's actually more democratic, in that every single person, no matter how much stake you hold, gets to participate in the security of this ecosystem. And you do so by basically electing other actors or other nodes who are the ones who have to play the pivotal part of providing security or value to this protocol. And that works out really well for Livepeer because we have this role called transcoder, where, which is required that you, know, you can't be an effective transcoder For live video, if you're just running on your laptop and you close your laptop and go offline in the middle of someone's live stream, you need people to run, you know, great hardware and have enough bandwidth and probably be in a data center uh, to be able to provide that service reliably for live video, which can't go down. And so, you know, you or I on our laptop can still participate in this protocol by electing those Those nodes who have demonstrated they can do a good job and are charging prices that are great for the network and are willing to share some of the fees that they're earning back to you in exchange for kind of doing your research and and delegating towards them. So you mentioned the word bonding. The way that you uh, participate in this protocol is you, you bond your token. You put down a deposit and that sort of locks it up for some period of time. And once you've done that, you've committed kind of longer term, I'm going to play a role in this protocol. And you get to elect the transcoding nodes who you think will bring a lot of value to the network. And in exchange for doing so, you will earn your fair portion of block reward in proportion to how much stake you bonded and delegated. So if you've bonded 5% of all of the stake in the network, you're going to earn 5% of the new block reward. That's being released, but because not every token is going to be bonded, not everyone in the network is bonding. Those who do are actually earning all the block reward. They're increasing their ownership percentage in the network. So it's a very strong, depending on the inflation rate, it's a very strong incentive to bond your token. And you're, you know, you're giving up a little liquidity and the ability to move in and out of it very quickly. um, If that's what you care about but you, in exchange, are um, getting protection from inflation and increasing your ownership in the network in exchange for participating in this security protocol. So the end result is you get reliable transcoders with a lot of bandwidth and compute who are proving that they do a great job, and you get people participating in that process and ensuring that the network is high quality for everyone and, and most valuable in the long term.
1: You said inflation rate which surprised me is is, are you going to build in um like i had assumed that it was the broadcaster paying the tokens which would then be distributed into um the transcoders and then into um you know the people that are that are bonding for those transcoders uh is that is that the case it sounds like not
0: (laughs) it's both it's just it's just like ether where the the uh, miner earns a block reward from inflation and a fee from people doing transactions. And so it's the same way here where everyone delegating will earn um, a block reward from the inflation and will earn the fees from the broadcasters. And the fees to the broadcasters can be much lower because of the. block reward because of the new inflation the same way that in ethereum the transaction fees are much lower than they would be if there was no block reward
1: so maybe this is a dumb question i'm gonna have to edit out but um are you having your own chain for this
0: then nope it's a erc 20 token on ethereum and the protocol is implemented as ethereum smart contract okay and uh yeah, the protocol just releases token um, every round. Okay, um, so which there's just some built-in
1: inflation into the contract, then basically, like correct, like correct. a block reward. That, like when you call it a block reward, that I mean, that makes sense from from your perspective, but it, it confused me a little because I was thinking like block reward to me implies like separate
0: chain. Yep, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we don't have our own blockchain, and block reward uh, doesn't need to be the term. That we use, uh, we could consider changing that in an update of the the white paper. But at least, you know, when we talk about transcoding and, and broadcasting and video, those are terms that are like unfamiliar to people who follow these crypto protocols and blockchains. And if instead we called it, you know, mining and transaction fees um, and blocks, right? You know, it's still they're analogous. It's the purpose, even if. Under the hood, it's not those concepts exactly.
1: Gotcha. Um, so uh, I, I had some questions about how as a as a token holder and I, I wanted to bond, I would be able to choose between my transcoders but I guess yep. that's that's um, that's merely a, that's a, mat, a matter of building like a, a UI right or some sort of you know list of
0: people. Um, exactly exactly
1: how do you enforce identity though because that seems like a little bit of an issue there right because you have to like if a transcoder like screws something up and goes offline for a while like all you really know about that transcoder is their ip right their ip address so uh
0: you know their you know their ethereum address in the uh in the protocol so candidate transcoders have an ethereum address and that's who you've bonded to and you can see all their statistics about how long they've been a transcoder what fees they've charged how many jobs they've done how many times they've messed up and gotten slashed um what price they're currently charging uh all those sorts of things so that's that's identity at the like protocol layer and then we actually you know we've registered some ens names we thought we might make it useful where you know you could you could register um know, Evan.transcoder. And you could that's the identity you could use. Or sorry, Evan dot ETH. And that's the identity you could use in the, you know, the forum and the UI when you say, hey, please elect me. This is you know the equipment I'm running and this is why I'm a good candidate and kind of the social contract that you're making with people. Uh, so that's kind of a, a user level extension. Then you're absolutely right. We need like great UIs and apps that that Make it easy for protocol participants to not have to use the command line to, you know, send an Ethereum transaction to a specific address, but instead can just click a button in a DAP and and plug in some other stake.
1: So essentially, like somebody that got slashed a lot, they would basically just start over with a new IP address and a new Ether address, and they would just start over, and and so there would there would probably be some sort of like you would need to self bond quite a bit, um, in order to get Ex- your first few jobs kind of deal. Is that
0: exactly like you, they wouldn't be able to move any stake to the new address except their own. you know, so they'd have to self bond enough, like you said, and, or they'd have to be great at campaigning and demonstrating what value. So you could see how, you know, you see this in, in steam where people elect the witnesses or block producers, um, you know you would think it would be really hard to move into that top 20 because they have such a advantage and head start and so much statistics but you know when someone demonstrates something completely different like oh i built the steam mobile app like you've been interacting with me on this social forum for months like i'd like you know i'm, I'm announcing my candidacy for witness um, you know they sometimes have luck like jumping the jumping the line attracting a lot of attention because people think they've contributed a lot to the ecosystem and they'd be great at running that role so i think similarly you see people who maybe build the killer app on live Pier, they build the decentralized youtube they build the you know the great decentralized content discovery experience i think they have a great shot at candidacy for for transcoder plus there's there's really there's no theoretical limit to the number of active transcoders that there could be um, we'll certainly start with a, a smaller amount so that it's manageable and we can test things and people understand it. But, you know, in the long term, there's no reason that uh you know, anyone who isn't getting slash and is doing the work effectively and correctly will just get allocated, you know, a smaller number of jobs if they have less stake in the network. So it's it's pretty democratic.
1: Well well awesome. Fantastic. This is uh this is super interesting. Um very excited about about Live Peer. um Where can anything else I missed? Anything you want to cover that feel like needs to be particularly said?
0: Evan, this was excellent. Thanks so much for uh, for having me on. And, and yeah, if anyone wants to learn more about Livepeer, they can find us at livepeer.org or at livepeer.org on Twitter. And our chat room is actually the best place to find the team and ask questions and engage. So it's linked on the website. You can find us there.
1: And you are at Petcanics on Twitter? Or are you Correct. You can find,
0: oh. Nope, I'm, I'm at Petcanics, P-E-T-K-A-N-I-C-S. You can find me on Twitter there.
1: Awesome. We could we could use a little more of your humor on on Twitter, maybe. But <laughs> other than that,
0: <laughs> I don't th- I don't think I got to drop any jokes into this podcast at all.
1: Yeah, I know that, uh, that was a fail on my part.
0: <laughs> all business, all the time.
1: <laughs> awesome. All right, Doug. Well, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it.
0: Yep. Thanks, Evan.
1: Yep. Bye. Bye.